So, Bob, I have some questions from some patrons and some psychology news stories, and I thought I would, you know, pose these questions to the two of us, and two therapists would answer the questions. What do you say? Yeah, let's do that. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. I am your old friend from graduate school. My name is Bob Gettle. I am a therapist in practice here in Seattle. The first email here is from patron Hillary. She writes, how would you treat childhood trauma if someone who has all the signs of PTSD, oh, how would you treat childhood trauma in someone who has all the signs of PTSD but few explicit memories? For example, they may remember a few instances that clearly point to patterns of terrible things taking place in the past, but they can only remember a small number of specific events. Do you just process those few events that are remembered and hope for the best? What do you think, Bob? Uh, you should do that, probably, if those events are traumatic. And the good thing about um, good treatment for PTSD is you do not have to generate or have memory. All you have to do is look for what are the cues that set off the symptoms of anxiety. And those could be things that a person comes across, like a smell or a sight or an anniversary date or whatever. And if you do exposure to the things that actually cause the anxiety, you can treat the PTSD successfully and the person doesn't need to have memory. Right. So uh, the idea is, is that as the as they're triggered by an by a smell or a, um, I don't know, like a, a, a movie actor or yeah. something, you uh, expose them to that, you know, uh, after them becoming aware of their emotions and knowing how to reduce their distress. Right. And then uh, through those triggers, while experiencing those triggers, they have an elevation in arousal and stress and you uh, work together or even the client just does it on their own do relaxation, distress tolerance, and it brings it down. And eventually you become habituated to that trigger. Yeah. And then in the end, you just keep doing that. And eventually you don't have PTSD anymore. Right. So you don't have to remember the actual events. Um, for some people, they do remember uh, a lot of the events vividly. And uh, you can do triggers, but you can also just remember the actual events. And right. then through that, you uh, become a habituated to those memories right because the memories are the triggers right and then you can treat the ptsd that way yeah there's sort of a myth from the old freudian days that you quote unquote have to work through or process events and memories that have happened to you you have to unearth them yeah and that is kind of true for in a sense um, in that when we go through difficult times, it, it sometimes is good to talk about them and, and, and quote-unquote process them. Um, if it's PTSD-related, then it's good to uh, you know, become habituated to those memories. Right. But the notion that every difficult memory has to be unearthed and quote-unquote processed by talking about it is, is a myth, yeah. you know. Uh, well, PTSD is a thing that happens in the present moment. It doesn't happen in the past. Right. So what are the things that are bugging me today? What are the things that are scaring the hell out of me today? Right. Those are the things I want to treat because that's where the trauma is. Right. In a sense, it's like treating a phobia or yeah, something. Yeah, treating a phobia. Yeah. Yeah, usually it's it's exactly like treating a phobia. Yeah, Yeah. The PTSD in dsm four used to be in the anxiety uh, chapter, was it Was it not? Yeah. And now it's in a in a trauma 
related chapter, I think. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Which I find to be, I guess, makes sense in a certain way. I'm sure there was some justification for that. But at the same time, I'm like, I, I think it should still be considered anxiety, you know? It, it is primarily. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fear. Panic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, so, so um, Hillary, uh, you, you want to treat this phenomenologically. What's in front of you and work with that? You don't have to worry about what the person doesn't remember. The stuff they don't remember is not bothering them. Absolutely. And there are even times when I have worked with clients where we have, quote unquote, processed past memories without them remember anything. I I had a client once who didn't remember a single thing uh, from before she was like 10 or nine years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. And but we knew enough of what was likely happening that we quote-unquote, process and work through those things. We didn't really treat PTSD around that because Mm -hmm. there wasn't any direct distress from memories because there were no memories. But the meaning-making or the narrative work can be done by supposing or imagining based on what she did remember past 10 and sort of extrapolated back, you know. Mm -hmm. And when we would do that, she would have emotions. You know, she would think wow, when I was five, I must have been going through this or that. And that was very sad for her. Yeah. But she didn't remember the ex- she didn't remember a single thing about right. it. She's like, yeah, that's probably what happened. And that felt like letting out those emotions and, yeah. and whatnot. H- Hillary also asks, can you talk about specific signs to a therapist that their client is dissociating? And on the flip side, how can a client become aware that they're dissociating? I would love to hear maybe Bob and you answer these questions. What do you think? I think we could answer these questions. <laughs> um, it's a good question. How do you know if somebody's dissociating? Um, I'm thinking about somebody that I work with now, and one of the things that she does is she looks down. She gets quiet. She kind of has a kind of a in, uh, inward kind of body posture. I don't like saying it that way, but she's definitely with, withdrawn, I guess is the best way to put it. And... Um, Oddly enough, this is about three weeks ago. I've been working on attunement when in my sessions and just being slow and quiet and paying very good attention. And uh, interestingly enough, when she dissociated, so did I. Wow. And I said to her, are you dissociating? And she's like, yeah. And And my clue was just my own inner experience of unreality. And, you know, attunement is awesome. Yeah. Uh, do you dissociate sometimes? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know does. that. Yeah. What? What'd you say? Everybody does. I mean, it's daydreaming is dissociating, but you're asking if I dissociate like, um, trauma related, trauma related dissociation. Yeah. Oh yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so that's one observation. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of hard to describe, right? Because a lot of people look down. Sure. A lot of people become inward. Right. Uh, to me, because people ask me this sometimes, and sometimes I feel compelled to explain it, particularly to trainees, because I feel like dissociation is frequent in therapy offices, and a lot of therapists, particularly novice therapists, have no idea how to detect it. You know, it's one thing when someone comes in and they're like, I'm really scared, or I'm suffering from anxiety, or I'm depressed, or something. People who are dissociating 
particularly uh, people who don't um, haven't been in therapy a lot with an expert, they don't know they're dissociating. Yeah, it's um, something that when you actually discover it together, they're like, "I think I've been dissociating every other day for the, my entire life." Right. And I always sort of thought of it as just, isn't everyone else like that? That's my normal. Or I think I always just kind of ignored it or something, right. you know, but now that I think about it, I think I've been zoning out frequently, yeah. you know, it's, and it's, it's very upsetting to people to think that they have this mechanism that kicks in that, uh, you know, causes them to, um, separate somewhat from reality. Right. Um, so you're asking how, what are the specific signs that a therapist uh, would you know could look for to me when I was thinking about this, you really just have to experience it 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 's a felt sense it 's a um, it 's a you know you have if for i 'll just tell you my own path so when I first learned about dissociation in graduate school, it was explained to me there 's probably a vignette or something, but I had no idea what to look for you know most of it. Uh, and then over time, I would work with people and I would, you know, find out that they had been traumatized or they have a lot of stress in their life or something. And then I would start to notice there were some times in sessions where they were less responsive than other times. Yeah. And then um, they might come in the next session and say like, yeah, I think I was sort of out of it last time. And then I'd be like, oh, is that dissociation? And then I would ask them, you know, more questions about that experience. And then, you know, uh, working with, you know, a handful of clients like this, eventually I started having a good conceptualization with them and, and, and a general conceptualization of what dissociation is and sort of the discovery of it. Because a client comes into your office and you, you just ask them, do you, do you ever dissociate? Most people like I said, people are going to say, no, I don't. Um, or what is that? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, so, uh, working with those people for many years and then subsequent people after that, I now have, and you know, Bob, you do too, a, a sense of the kinds of things that you're going to see and the kinds of things you're going to feel like as a therapist, counter-transference wise, yeah. like you said, you started to dissociate because they started to dissociate. Yeah. And the, um, that feeling that you get, like, like you might be a little spacey or you might feel like you're kind of chasing them or you might feel like the room has gotten darker or deader or something. Right. Um, and that's something that you can't explain to people. You have to kind of find that out as you go through it. Yeah. This is what it's like. And you know, a right. person develops. Right. It, and the analogy that I thought of was, It'd be like, you know, asking a heart surgeon, explain heart surgery to me. Right. You know, what, what is heart surgery like? Sure. Or how do I do heart surgery? Right. How do I detect, you know, the need for heart surgery? It's like you would never expect, you know, a heart surgeon to explain it to you right. in a short form and have you know the answer to that question. You have to be next to that person as they're doing it or experience it yourself. And then, you know. Yeah. And so with dissociation, I, I think it's that. There are other conditions like depression, for example, that I, I think are easier. But even then, I think all of them really, you have to, with all the conditions, um, uh, even the more simple ones like panic or something, I think you have to uh, be with someone and really 
uh, have them describe it to you and be with them week in week out you know it's it's not something that you can just quickly describe to somebody yeah you know and, and even it, you as far as you and me know for all we know we miss times when that happens you know what do they say they say good moms are attuned to their kids like a third of the time yeah or something like that and you know that's good moms and kids grow up and they're good kids or they're good they have good enough mental health and you know they got it parents got it right a third of the time or something like that right though you know uh, i think it's also reasonable to ask your client if you think that there's something going on to ask you know are you feeling checked out are you feeling unreal where do your i the question i've been asking a lot of people lately is where do you where do your eyes want to go and you know what's funny i don't know if you've noticed this i've noticed this my own personal counseling and i've been watching my clients they all have favorite spots in the room for their eyes to go oh yeah yeah so i've got a couple of my favorites and and um where do you look when I'm in counseling, I look out the window and at the Space Needle is one of my places. And sometimes I look at the bricks across the alley from where my counselor's office is. Where, where is your counselor's office? Down Queen Anne. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or sometimes I just monkey with the vision of the blinds in his office. So for those books. who don't, who aren't familiar with Seattle, essentially Bob's therapist lives just a little bit down the hill from where Fraser was supposed to be living. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, and so uh, Bob can look out the window and and has the Fraser view yeah. of of uh, Space Needle. It's yeah. funny, like there are people people will email or comment or something, and they'll be like, "Oh, there's a therapist in Seattle. That's like Fraser." You know, it's just it's like they know they know two things about Seattle, right? Uh, Fraser and rain, right? Right? You know, and it's just. <laughs> Or sleepless in Seattle, is, I guess. <laughs> right, that's the one, yeah. Yeah, and it's just funny to, you know. You know, people still go to that guy's houseboat. Really? Yeah. Is it still there? Yeah, it's still there. Wow. Yeah, it's like two million bucks. I think it was for sale recently. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, houseboats, I, I had a friend who had a houseboat down there uh, in the 90s. Did you ever go with me? To, he would have a lot of parties at that houseboat. Who's that? Um, Lusby, Pete Lusby. No, anyway, I don't think I ever went. Uh, it... It was it was cool, you know. It just seems cool. So, if, again, if you're not familiar with Seattle, there's this there's this uh, Lake Union, which is right in the middle of Seattle. It's, yeah. it's this huge lake that's Fabulous. just like plopped right in the middle of Seattle, and it um, has inlets. It's a uh, in between the Puget Sound and and a, a huger lake, Lake Washington, and there on one maybe on both sides, East Lake and West Lake, there yeah. are and North Lake. And North Lake too. Yeah, there are a bunch of these long docks, and then there's these houseboats, and and they they look like little houses that are yeah, floating, floating there, and um, they are often compact. Yeah. Is one of the things, and they often have roof decks. You know, yeah. Um, and the uh, uh, you know they seem they seem super cool, right? It's just like, oh, how cool would it be to like, yeah, you know, live in a house that's floating on the water? Right. It just seems so cool. But look at the city, the skyline, yada yada. Right, but it has all sorts of problems um, when there's waves, which aren't very frequent. You know, your house starts to move. It moves. <laughs> it's definitely floating. And all the infrastructure has to be uh, adapted to floating. Yeah. So your your cable internet, your power, your plumbing, yeah. your waste disposal, uh, you know, taking the garbage out. You know, yeah. a boat doesn't come by and get your garbage. Yeah. You know, you have to haul, haul your it. garbage all the way up to, you know, down the dock and da-da-da. Yeah. Uh, there's so. probably some noise issues or something. So, you know, he would talk about 
how um, it was kind of a pain. Yeah. You know, the, the houseboat was a little bit overblown. Anyway, how do we get on that topic? Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so just some descriptions that you can work with your clients, and that's what you do. It's, it's dissoci- It would be really hard to detect association without having the client tell you what's happening with them. Yeah. You know, it'd be hard to just look at someone and say, oh, they're dissociated. Right. Uh, uh, so it's a matter of asking them. So, you know, yeah. you brought up some some descriptions that they might say. They might yeah. feel unreal. Unreal. Which is, you know, a, a, an interesting word, right? It's like, well, what does that mean? Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, things around me don't feel real. Uh, I'm, sometimes I'm not sure I'm real. Um, but there's a sort of like a, a film or a blanket between me and um, other people. And I feel out of touch. Hmm. I feel fuzzy brained. Um, I often don't know what my own emotional state is and, um, I can't think very clearly. Hmm. I can't form words very, very easily. And it's, you know, sometimes it's, you know, not as intense as other times. Hmm. Uh, some people, they absolutely lose track of time. They are in an altered state and they don't notice the passage of time. Um, and then, you know, Minutes, hours later, they don't remember anything that happened in between, you know, and there's this lost gap. I don't have an, I don't have that severe experience. I don't think I've ever had that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Excellent description. Um, sometimes people say they're, they feel spacey, spacey or not really there. Yeah. They'll say, or like you said, you don't even know what, you don't even know what emotions you're having. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole purpose of an association is to help you cope with unbearable emotions right. and situations. Natural process, uh, the brain develops it, if I remember right, uh, around age five, and everybody has the capacity and needs it. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's, I didn't, I've never really looked into the research, but yeah. from my experience, that's, and it stands to reason that all of us are born with the capacity to dissociate, but only some of us need it growing up. Yeah, right. To survive. Uh, Awful. Right. And for those who need it because they're dealing with very difficult things, whether it's bad parenting or even just war or something. Right. And if you use that mechanism enough prior to age five, then for the rest of your life, you retain that reaction um, in all likelihood. Yeah. So for me, I, I didn't need that coping skill. Mm. or that I didn't rely on that when I was young, or at least I, I don't remember doing it. Sure. And as and, an adult, you don't find that. Right. Yeah. As an adult, I could be absolutely freaking out about something and probably need to dissociate. Hmm. And I can't because it, 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 it was never developed. You know, those neuro, neuronal pathways weren't um, strengthened as a child. You know, I, an analogy is like, we're all born with the ability to vocalize in all languages. Oh, yeah, right. You know, like a, a three-month-old will goo-goo-ga-ga in such a way that you will hear syllables that only, you know, Mandarin speakers can say, but English people cannot say. Can't, they can't form them. But through reinforcement and mimicry, children will pair away certain syllables uh, that aren't used in the context that they're in, 
And then by the time they're, you know, five and older, they can't, they can't make, there's certain, there's certain syllables in Chinese that you and I could never do. Like we don't, we can't even hear the differences. Like, have you ever, have you had that, that test where they, there's these two vowel sounds that Chinese people can absolutely tell the difference between, um, you know, it just, it just keeps repeating. It's just like, eh, eh, eh. Eh. And to them, it's it's like O E O E, but to us, it's eh eh eh, and that's be and and that's not because we're not paying attention. It's because our brain has lost the ability to differentiate between those two things, where they retained that ability, or oh, they they built that when their brain was more plastic. You right. know what I mean? And and vice versa, right? Yeah. So, like, you know, you'll hear people. Um, Japanese people and you know other people they have a hard time between R and D or L R and L R and L yeah and so you know uh, they won't you know so they'll say things like like actually Kirk my name is I have learned it's to some people impossible to even understand yeah like even even to uh you know latin american people which you know we wouldn't consider to be that different from english you yeah. know but when i was in colombia or, or uh, cuba you know they'd ask me my name and i'd say kirk and they just stare at me like what what are you what are you saying like it 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 was so hard for them to even hear you know and then of course they even if they did get it they cannot pronounce, pronounce it. it like it there's this something about you know, I've, I've, I think I've learned that the er, uh, you know, vowel yeah. is quite unique to um, English and, and even American English. Like yeah. it's a very particular vowel that ninety nine percent of people don't understand and can't say. Can you can you repeat how somebody might have said your name? Oh, it's it. Uh, it there's so many different oh, adaptations. Yeah, yeah. Um, one is is cock. So in Japan, I'm cock. Oh, that's uh, that's too bad. Which is great. Um, it's actually officially kaku because uh, they frequently can't end a word on a on a, a uh, consonant. Yeah. So it's but short. It's cock, which is great. Um, Kidik is another yeah. one. So kidik. There's no er in there, right? It's, no. It's this it's is a rolled r. Kidik. Yeah. or um kidik kidik like that just because the kirk yeah. er is like really hard for people anyway how do we get on that topic um neuroplasticity right so if you develop uh, that skill or use that skill as a young one you retain that ability later in life i'm pretty sure my name is universally able to be pronounced <laughs> Yeah. It's terrible. Well, I wonder, though, because even ah, like, I wonder if some people are more like Bob. Oh, yeah, yeah. Germans. Bob. Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Bob. Yeah. Get any boobs? Uh, not uh, on purpose, or uh, not by accident. <laughs> <laughs> was that a nickname when you were a kid? No. Bob the Boob? No. I think that's a good you know, nickname. That's funny. I was always Bob, though. I was never Rob. I was never Robert and Bobby to my family. Or you're Bobby to your family. Uh, but most people our generation are Rob. Right. But I was never Or Robert. Or Robert occasionally. Yeah, I, I find it, it in our generation, no one went by Michael or Robert yeah. or Jennifer. Right. Or Elizabeth. Right. Or 
Susan, right, or Alan, like Jonathan, right. No one, nobody. Everyone had most people had those long names, but nobody went by those full names, right? Nobody. But uh, net today, almost everyone goes by those long names. Oh, really? Yeah. Like if your name's Jonathan, you do not let people call you John. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Young, huh. Younger people, I find that to be true. I like a one-syllable name. It's just easier. You know, I do too. Um, and like, I like the fact you go by Bob, you yeah. know? Um, I like, uh, like Michael Drain, for example, yeah. from Unpopular Culture Podcast. He, his name's Michael. And uh, I, a lot of people call him Michael. But... But I like to call him Mike. <laughs> I thought he does. Does he go by Mike? I think to his childhood friends or maybe his family. I'm not sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just I I don't know. Like I like Jen. Yeah, Jen's maybe, good. maybe Jenny. I don't Al. Know. Al's your buddy. Nick. Al. My dad is Al. Right. He goes by Al. My mom Susan goes Sue. Sue. Right. Uh, I mean, people should be able to be called what they want to be of called. Course. Of course. Uh, but if I had a preference, you know. Kirk, you know, it's a short, short name. Yeah. You know, I just... Right there. Yeah. Kirky I, Joe occasionally. I guess it's like conservation of energy or something. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's take a break. We get back. Let's answer more questions. What do you say, Bob? Sure. All right. We're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Also, if you're having trouble accessing older episodes, email us at contact at psychologyandstyle.com. We can usually help you. The, the best place to get older episodes, or really if you're searching for an episode, the best place to go is our website. Your phone app or Patreon are, or YouTube are not easily searchable, and some episodes, many episodes aren't even on. Like right now, if you're listening on your phone, you probably only have access to the last 300 episodes. And we have over 800 episodes as of now. So if you're looking for archive, go to our website. I, I, if, you, if you were there in the past and were annoyed with it, I get it. But I, I recently revamped it so that it might be easier to, um, to peruse. There's categories of, of um, uh, episodes. like you index it? Yeah. So like I have a page for episodes for new therapists I have a page oh, for cool. episodes for clients like that address client issues yeah i have a page on sexuality a page on psychopathology a page on personality disorders a page on uh family things a page on movies you know yes. what i mean yeah so do that and also become a patron because um that's what cool people do uh this next one is from an anonymous patron they wrote is it best to inform a client that you believe they have a narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis? My supervisor seems to think so. But after all the research I have read, I am not sure. Many people seem to say that if you tell a client with narcissistic personality disorder that they are narcissistic, it will alienate them from you. Bob, what do you think? I, I, um, I don't think anybody should be shy about a diagnosis, but what is the point? What, who cares? Right. Exactly. So that's, to me, the question. It's like, well, what would be the purpose, you know? I mean, on some level, it, it, I consider it an ethical issue that if you have diagnosed someone, particularly if you've sent that diagnosis to third-party payers, insurance companies, sure, 
then the client should be aware of that, yeah. in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, but if that's not the case, and often you're not going to send a narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis to the insurance company, because I don't, I don't even know if they would reimburse for oh, that. Oh, yeah. No, they'll reimburse for it if it's, it's, medi- it's uh, medically necessary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like in the cookbook of disorders. So Okay. Yeah. But some, of the, but some DSM labels are not... The v- uh, do they still have V-codes? Yeah, well, of course, V-codes. But um, for Medicaid, for a while, they weren't accepting adjustment disorders. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, if if I remember right. Yeah. Um, And I think even now, they only accept adjustment disorders for a certain amount of time. Yeah, well, it's supposed to be time limited. Right. Yeah. Um, So, you know, uh, but I haven't run into that problem. Have you? You don't, you don't. I don't bill health insurance anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I use one, I use Blue Cross, that's the only one I use, right. because they reimburse pretty well, and they're pretty low-key. I imagine whatever diagnosis you've ever put, they don't even, they just, you know, yeah. process it. Yeah. yeah. I, I've had a client who I've been billing under adjustment disorder for right. years without any pushback or anything, you know. So this person, I think the thing isn't, should I or shouldn't I talk about the person's, the client's diagnosis is... What is my goal? What is it that I'm hoping to achieve? Because, you know, is it? I don't know that the diagnosis is all that important. But, but understanding. I keep using the word phenomenologically. Ugh, what an awful word. Anyways, but understanding a person where they are is important. Yeah, and that doesn't have much to do with you know a label. I like the word phenomenologically. My dissertation was a phenomenological study, and oh, I s- typed the word phenomenological or you know phenomenology so many times it's a long weird word it is there's a lot of like sort of confusing little consonants and vowels in there oh yeah but man did i have a rhythm to that to typing that word right yeah Yeah. i i sort of broke it up into three you know there's the fem and then the minno and then the ology you know anyway the point is is i like the word continue to use it um so the uh, so you're you're saying anonymous. You're like you know, is it best to inform a client that you believe they have a narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis? And you're saying your supervisor seems to think so. And what I would encourage you to do is to talk with your supervisor about that justification. My cat is, um, you know, she she awakens. I think she, when I'm talking, she thinks I'm talking to her. Oh, of course you are. And so she, she you know she awakens and starts talking. Um. I had so, a cat that did that every time I got on the phone. Right? Yeah, I talk. It's yeah. like, oh, you must be talking to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, some people have cats that don't meow ever. Uh-huh. You know, like, they never meow. Just, they, you know, my cat meows hundreds of times a day. Big talker. Yeah. Lots to say. Yeah. And I know what her meows mean. Oh, yeah. Like, right now, she's like, you know, hey, what's up? Yeah. You know, I'm I'm here. Uh, what are you guys doing? You know, like, I mean, it's not that anthropomorphic, but <laughs> it, it's it's like it's an announcement that like I'm in the room, um, uh, notice me, yeah. and and I like you guys. Like that's yeah. a I like you meow. She never comes up to me, really. Yeah. Well, she's doing it now. She is. Uh, she also cannot pronounce your name. <laughs> it's true, um, but she dissociates all the time now. Um, so I would ask your supervisor, I would say like, well, why do you think it's important that I tell my clients that they have a personality disorder diagnosis? 
Um, and also, how does this advance our work? Right. So that's the whole thing. It's like, like you said, what's the purpose? Now, with some people with um, just person, so personality disorders are, if if someone had major depression, there wouldn't really be a question about whether or not you would tell them because it's be, not a, it's not a big deal. You'd be talking about depression as part of their right. You know, you just like. Well, you qualify for the label of major depressive disorder, yeah. so which you know. can be actually validating, right? Some yeah. people love it; they're yeah. just like, "Oh, there's a thing." There's a thing, right? I mean, that's how I cured the beginning of me curing myself of panic, right? That's which right. was to find out that oh, it's a thing. It's, it's a thing. It's I'm not going crazy. It's not some amorphous, unique experience to me. It was the same actually when I, I mean, I always knew that death anxiety was a thing. You know, oh, I always yeah. I always knew that like some people kind of think about mortality more than others, you know, right. and, and uh, alternate between kind of worrying about it and, and otherwise. And I'd always sort of knew that intellectually, but when I, I read a phenomenological, so when, in my dissertation uh, research, I was learning phenomenological research and how to write a report. So, yeah. you know, cause phenomenological reports are kind of unique. Because it's a lot of qualitative yeah. data, right? It's all qualitative data, and how do you how do you distill that down to a report dissertation, you know, level? And so I was reading various different phenomenological studies, and one of one of them was on people's experience with death anxiety, and so there are all these oh, right. um, uh, quotes and categorized, you know, and after reading that report, it was profound to me in terms of my feeling of normal, feeling normal and uh, feeling um, much more at peace, really. It's like, oh, this is a thing that a lot of people have. And I've read these other people describe my exact experience, you know? And then it was like, it just, it dissipated like 95% of the intensity. You know? Right. Having said that, for people out there, it was it's never been intense. It's just like, to me, my death anxiety, quote unquote, has been more like this awareness, you know, it, when people walk out into the world, you know, like sometimes you're like, Oh, I'm really aware of the weather right now, or I'm really aware of the smells of the ocean, or I'm really aware of, um, I don't know, like how people are walking or, you know, there's certain things you can pay attention to and certain things you will not pay attention to. Well, in my, the sphere of a thousand things I pay attention to in the day. One of them is frequently the fact that this will, this is one day closer to me dying. Oh yeah. You know, and, um, and of everyone else that I know. Right. And, you know, sometimes, you know, probably once a month I'll be in a crowd of people and I'll be like in a hundred and, you know, 10 years, like, well, we're all, we're all dead. Yeah. We're all rotting in the ground or, you know, you know, dust in the wind. Right. And, it just it just interests me, you know. I don't I don't panic in that moment, but it's just sort of like, isn't that interesting? And it and it puts things in perspective, really. You know, that awareness of like it's sort of like when I don't know if this analogy is going to make any sense, but in my head, pre formed into words, it makes sense already to me. Is you everyone has a sense of what time of day it is, right? Um, so in the morning, you have a whole day ahead of you, right? Right. If you are a sort of person who sleeps at night. So you have a lot of things that you can do. You have a lot of things that you can get done. And there's not sort of a panic of like, oh, shit, like I only have a you know certain amount of time left. 
um, midday, you know, there's a different sense of like, okay, I've, what have I gotten done? You know, where am I headed? What, you know, what's the rest, uh, an hour before bed, you're kind of aware of the fact that you're going to go to bed soon. So at that moment, you're not going to run a marathon or start cleaning the house because you're like, well, in an hour, I'm going to be, I'm going to be in bed. You might even start like, well, this is my chill time. You know, I'm going to chill. You know, this is the, this is the hour I just, you know, watch Netflix or something. Well, that's what I'm like about death is like, okay, I'm 48 years old. Um, where am I in my day of my life? You know what I mean? When I was 20 and when I was 19, I had a, I had the same thought. I'm like, I'm 19. I'm going to be dead probably around the age of 80 or something, you know, 90 if I'm lucky. And what does that mean? I'm 19. I'm an, and I could die tomorrow. It's a, that's sure. another thing. It's like, I, you know, I might actually be dead soon. So what does that, how does that inform my life now? What am I supposed to be doing right now? You know what I mean? Yeah. This is the morning of my life. Right. At 19. Right. N- now at 48, I'm at like, you know, uh, six o'clock or something, yeah. you know, or it's or, after lunch. Yeah, it's definitely, a, it's definitely after lunch. Um, it's, it, it's dinner time. And, um, what does that mean? You yeah. know, like, what does that mean to, to my life now? What perspective, uh, what should I be doing? Um, and that, um, that's what I, when I say death anxiety, that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's more of like death awareness. And sometimes it's upsetting, you know, to sure. think about. Because like, Me too. even if you believe in an afterlife, there's no real way to know. And if you don't. And if you don't, then then you don't. And it's it. it's it, you know. And so um, it's, uh, I don't know, it's upsetting yeah. to, to think about me and everyone that I care about just no longer being able to enjoy life anymore, you know? Yeah. I think the worst part about death to me, at least as I consider it these days, is there's 51 years of gathering experience, and I sort of feel like, oh, I'm 51. I'm sort of coming into my own a little bit, and at some point, it's all gone. Yeah. How do you feel about that? That sucks, man. It brings me down. Brings you down. I get scared about it, and I feel um, sad about it, and, you know, life is like walking the plank. You might not know how long the plank is, but... How often do you get scared and bummed out about it? A couple, three times a week. Right? Okay. So you're like... you're. I mean, I I, I don't get bummed out about it as much anymore. Um, does it happen particular times of the day for you? Nighttime. Yeah. When I'm too. going to sleep, it often happens. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have a, a conceptualization of why that happens? Because that's the same for me. It's when I my head hits the pillow, it's dark, and that's when, like those thoughts become extremely vivid to me. Yeah. Like right now it's, I, I intellectually understand that we're all going to be dead. You and I are going to be dead. Intellectually. Yes. Like you and I are going to die at some point. Yeah. And we, if there is no afterlife, then we just no longer exist. We're, you know, we're, we're obliterated, you know, every memory, every thought is just gone, you know? And in a thousand years, every trace of us will be gone, you know. Maybe your podcast will live on, maybe. Uh, maybe not, you know. And, and so it's, uh, it's just dust in the wind, right? Yeah. And, um, but yeah, you have a conceptualization. Of, so right now I understand that. But tonight when my head hits the pillow and it runs through my mind, it, right. it feels so much more present oh, and, yeah. and upsetting. Like a know? felt sense of, 
your mortality as opposed to an intellectual awareness of it. Yeah. Why, why do you think it is? Uh, I think uh, nighttime when I go to sleep is just reflective for me. Yeah. You know, like I live in a nice place. It's a nice house. And I sleep with next to this really nice lady. And um, uh, somehow when I think about those things and my appreciation of them, my appreciation, my appreciation of them, I feel the temporary, temp, temporal, temporal nature the, of being a human. Temporary nature? Temporary, yeah. It's a temp job, man. Yeah. I just realized that temporary is is a temporal word. Yeah. You ever do that? You're really just like... Oh, yeah. I love words. Connection. Like, yeah. Did you know that connection? Of te- um, I don't know. I don't know if I ever thought about that one. Yeah. There was another one I had last week, but I can't remember what it was. Well, one that really blew me away like a year ago, or maybe, maybe it was like five years ago, actually, was understand. Oh, I was just thinking about that word the other day. Oh, right. It's like... I, you know, I always just sort of said understand yeah. with, without thinking about the fact that it's two words, yeah. under and stand, right. which is a metaphor for standing under something, which, you know, is a metaphor for, for uh, comprehending something. You yeah. Know? Do you know what the etymology of that word is? I don't. Is? I don't. It's fucking fascinating. Do you? No, no, but oh. I could look it up. Right. Um, so my conceptualization of why they become much more vivid when my head hits the pillow is that I, when I am, when people fall asleep from what I understand about um, uh, brain science is that we have a lot of different functions in our brain. There's, you know, there's functions that keep your heart going. There's functions that are for vision. There's functions for uh, math, you know, for language. And some of the, um, uh, less important parts of your brain start shutting down before the other ones do, you know? And one of the ones that shuts down is this ability to kind of soothe the self or to, um, to see something in a, um, in a way that gets you through the day. Cause you know, if the notion of death was not, tamped down by our brain, all of us would just be in despair, right? <laughs> so there's, I think there's some function of the prefrontal cortex, honestly, that like, that like kind of, you know, kind of keeps it in perspective or keeps you almost kind of unaware of the reality of it all. You know, it's just like, well, let's, let's not focus on sure. that. You know, let's, let's get you through the day. A defense mechanism, essentially. Coping right. or whatever. Right. And when my head hits the pillow, that part, starts to fade. Yeah, it goes to sleep. And this deeper part of, you know, amygdala or or something, I don't yeah. know what I want to say, but is still running, you know, active, still has a lot of strength and has nothing pushing back on it. And suddenly it, you know, this reality, you know, is sharp. It comes into sharp focus. And I think that it's not just death anxiety. I think it actually applies to any... That's why a lot of people can't fall asleep is because their head hits the pillow and suddenly they're going over every shameful, you know, seemingly stupid thing they've done recently or right. in their life. And there's no uh, brain mechanism to sort of push back on it. You know, because sometimes all I need to do is just get up and, you know, go to my computer Engage. and kind of browse the internet yeah. and give me like, you know, five minutes since my brain kind of wakes back up and then it, that that function kicks back in and I'm no longer in despair about death, you know, it's just, and then, 
if I quickly go to sleep, you know, having said that, I can't remember the last time that happened to me, but, um, you know, would have been, I don't know, five or 10 years ago or something. But, uh, the, that's my conceptualization. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, so getting back to your question about, you know, whether or not you should tell your clients they have narcissistic personality disorder. Um, so I do not tell clients if they have a personality disorder in general, for some of them, I will, you know, like Bob, you have a lot of clients who suffer from borderline pers- yeah. personality. And do you talk with them about that? Occasionally though, sometimes people find me because they've already, um, uh, been diagnosed as having that or believe they have that. And so, um, you know, what I've noticed about people in our profession is we have a kind of bigoted prejudice against that particular label. And we are the ones that freak out about it. Several clients uh, that I've talked that over with find it uh, validating and relieving to know that this is a thing, right? that this has a cause, it's this thing that happens, and um, they don't associate the word with anathema the way mental health people do and the way mental health people communicate that to the people that we are here to serve. Right, which is which upsetting. Which just sucks. Right. They will set clinicians, many, I would say a majority in my experience, will say, oh, she has borderline, watch out for her. Yeah, exactly. You know? Or she has borderline, you need to terminate. Or uh, you, you need to get yeah. rid of her. Ugh. You know, like you need to get you need to get that out of your office. Or we need to get that out of our agency. Yeah. Because there's a stigma and a false notion that they're going to sue you. Right. And, you know, there's all these bad things that are going to happen. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's upsetting. Um, so, but... Narcissistic personality disorder, you go on the internet, there's, you know, because I've done a deep dive on this, and part of my deep dive was to look at, you know, a lot of things that are being said on the internet, and um, I could only find out of probably thousands of of sources and even clinicians talking, there was only one source that I found to be accurate. Wow. It was this one random YouTube video that was, had, it was just someone talking over this um, graphic, and I, and I found it to be the only th- thing on the internet that um, even came close to talking about narcissistic personality disorder. You look on the internet right now, because it's sort of trendy right now to talk yeah. about narcissistic personality, it and the, uh, the associations that people will have is that they are uh, abusive, they're, they gaslight you, they're manipulative, oh, yeah. they are... Uh, psychopathic, yeah. sadistic maybe even is associated with narcissistic personality, which is just not true. Yeah. And I mean, sadism is associated with sadism, <laughs> uh, but there are plenty of people who have narcissistic personality disorder who are not quote unquote manipulative. Um, they, if you get close to them and they have a particular bad case of it and they get particularly triggered, they can get quite upset and they can become abusive for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of abusive people I have found to have uh, narcissistic personality disorder, yeah. but it's a lot more understandable when you understand them anyway. So the point is, is that um, if for people that I've treated with narcissistic personality, I usually don't say they have narcissistic personality, even though in my mind it is what they have. But the, the reason why I don't tell them is I would have to talk at them for 10 hours to help them understand what I mean by the label. Yeah. Because if they just walk away and of course they're going to Google it, they're going to, they're going to get the wrong idea about what it is. And so I, I don't do that. 
what I do use are phrases, and you'll hear me say this on the podcast, I will use phrases like relationally traumatized, yeah. for example, or pathologically independent, yeah. or defensively controlling, or defensively grandiose. They're phenomenological labels. Right. These, these are way more specific and precise terms yeah. and, under, and immediately understandable right. than narcissistic personality disorder because it's such a bastardized term yeah. in our society right now that I, I wouldn't uh, want someone to, th- to get messed up with that. Right. Whereas when I look at them and I say, you are defensively controlling, the, you know, and we have a rapport and we've investigated that enough, they're like, yeah, I... I get defensively controlling sometimes, you know. Um, The other thing is that the whole concept of of personality disorders are, uh, you know, fraught in a lot of ways because um, they, especially in the DSM, because the DSM is trying to scientifically describe a personality condition or a personality type. And the DSM is not good at that. So, and the DSM, for some reason, we've allowed it to dominate our, you know, our understanding of things. It's, and I always like to point out to my supervisees and students that the DSM is written by human beings. It didn't come on high from God. <laughs> so when was the last time you read something that was written by human beings that was flawless? Like, there's no book on any shelf that is flawless and all-encompassing. Some Stephen King novels you could case. <laughs> and, and so the DSM has problems, you yeah. know, and it has a task, it has a difficult task of trying to scientifically describe right. things that are completely amorphous, opinion-based, self-reported, um, squishy things. Culturally biased. Cult- cultural things. Yeah. Right. You ask someone from the South... Um, from, you know, rural Louisiana, right. what depression means, you know, they're going to have culturally a different sort of notion than a Seattle person has on what depression means, right. you know? So anyway. In Seattle, it's just Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the, now, but the, the, the label of narcissism is uh, meaningful to me because, we have like 120 years of psychoanalytic, psychodynamic personality research and discussions that use that term. You know, Kohut, Kernberg, Freud, um, Jung. You know, there's just there's just a lot of research around that, and so I um, like to use that term for in my head and, and outwardly for for that reason. But honestly, it. I kind of wish we would have picked a different word from the beginning. Sure. You know, like histrionic, for example, is just a really terrible word. Is that still in there? Um, is it? I think it is. Is it? Is it? Yeah. it was, I think they were trying to get rid of it, but... Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, histrionic goes back to when they thought, the Greeks thought that women's uterus, uh, their uterus would travel around their body and cause all sorts of... Uh, physical ailments and and behavioral and psychological ailments. And uh, when Freud and Breuer were first diagnosing people and people of that time, they would they were still using this term of hysteria and his, you know histrionic. And so it it's a legacy from that. So I w- you know I wish they would. I wonder what other name you could call it, like um, attention seeking personality disorder or something. Is is so much more yeah. descriptive. Um, with narcissism, it you know maybe a term like um, 
you know, I, I like the term defensively grandiose, you know, because yeah. it's, it describes it, you know, it's like you're grandiose, but it's a defense. Right. It's, it's not like the way people describe it. It's like, uh, narcissistic people wake up in the morning and they're like, ha ha ha, I'm yeah. going to be better than everyone else. It's like, no, they're suffering deeply on the inside. And they only do that because it's a, co- it's the coping style they were rewarded for as a young, as a young child that, you know, in the same way we were talking about a uh, dissociation, do we know anything about how um, uh, Freud and Freud's day would have seen that word? Because, you know, once the term gets, once it lands in the language and it sticks, it gets used, uh, overused, and then used as a club, like to, to um, you know, to bash people with. Yeah. You know, you've got borderline, which is just an awful sentence. Or the word retarded. Yeah, like the word retarded. Yeah. yeah. And pretty much anything you can think of. So do we know anything about what people in Freud's day or in the early days of um, psychology, what their own valence to that term was. I've researched it. Yeah. I don't know it off the top of my head. Yeah. And it's, it's probably not as loaded. No. And it's also harder to figure out because Freud wrote a lot in non-English. Right. German. Yeah. And two, it's he, him and all the, all his cohort spoke a, a particular language of of shop you know there's a certain shop language that you know when right. when you read melanie klein or or jung or adler or something it's it or in freud it's sort of like reading another language even if it's in english even in english it's yeah. just like well, what are they referring to right. there's all these references that you know it's like picking up a a you know a aeronautical engineering book and you know flipping to you know, chapter five sure. and, and just trying to understand what they're talking. You right. wouldn't understand it because, no. because they, they, they assume that you have prior knowledge before reading that paragraph. Right. And so, um, so I don't know. I'll, that's yeah. what I'll say about that. But, but early in early on narcissism, narcissism was understood as, as a defense Yeah. early, you know, it was, it was understood as a defensive thing. So not a term likely to be used as an epithet. No. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, do you use it? the word retarded anymore? No. Because sometimes I it occasionally like kind of comes out of my mouth. Not in a I've never used it as a derogatory term, I hope. Right. Um because when you know when we were young, retarded was not a bad word, you know. Yeah. There there was um like there were probably words before retarded that were you know used in a hurtful way that became bad like imbecile or idiot idiot yep. m- moron moron like imagine that imagine it's just so hard for you and uh, our generation to imagine that a clinician in a compassionate sense would call someone a moron yeah like this person's a moron well you know what they used to call down syndrome what mongoloid idiot You're right oh, so yeah 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 so well to because because other people would come along and use it as a insult as an insult as they go like oh you're a mongoloid idiot right. you're an idiot you're a moron right and the same way it, during our lifetime right. people started using retarded oh you're retarded yeah. that's retarded right and now you, you know it, it it's so it's been it the the slang use of the term has completely eclipsed the rather dry because you know all yeah. retarded means is that you learn slower, slower. than other people that's yeah. all it means that's all it means like it's not a big deal like, or it, or it doesn't even have to do about learning it's just become about learning because you know you could say that um uh, an object is retarded if it's like like say molasses 
it's you freeze it or you cool it and it rolls even slower, right? Right. It just means slow. Or in music, a retardando. Right, retardando. Yeah, slowing and, down the tempo. Yeah, and it's and all these words. Like I, I think I said something to someone recently where I was using it for a physical or maybe a music sense. I was like, oh, there's a because you can say there's a retard there. Yeah. In music. And someone was like, what did you just say? Yeah, right. Like, you can't say that word anymore. And I was, <laughs> and I was like, you know, it, because I, we're older, yeah. you know, there are certain movements that we won't notice. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, right. like older, older black people will use the word colored, colored. Yeah. because colored when they were young was right. not a bad word. Right. I mean, the NA, NA, NAACP, right? The National Association of American Colored People, is that what it is? Advancement of Colored People, yeah. Advancement of Colored People, right. I mean, one of the major organizations for African Americans has the word colored in it, but of course you could never say colored because it was used as a horrible word, right. you know? This is all things that everyone knows. The point is, is that's why I would never or rarely introduce the the word narcissism to yeah. a client because of this reason. It's all that baggage. To me, it means... It means nothing bad. Yeah. Borderline, you know, what, what, to me, the valence I have about borderline narcissism, uh, histrionic, is nothing bad. There's it's nothing. Neutral. It's just that it's you, everyone has a defense to the problems they went through sure. when they were children. Yeah. And we have lots of different words for those things. And three of them happen to be histrionic, narcissism, and borderline. borderline yeah. And, uh, but to clients, I would really hate it if they thought of it as a bad thing, you know? Yeah. So, so, you know, a very long answer to your question, patron is, um, what Bob answered it right away, which was, you know, what's the goal? Yeah. You know, what are you trying to achieve? Um, is it, does it further the goal of self-awareness of, um, helping someone to conceptualize why they are the way that they are? And if the stigma doesn't outweigh, you know, if the costs don't outweigh that, then you can do that. But um, I, I consider it more of a nuanced thing with people. Uh, let's just end there. Um, sure. We only got to two people, and I have a long list, so we're just going to have to have you back on the show another time to answer these other questions. What Sounds you, good. What do you say? Yeah. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. <laughs>